Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Here's our big idea this morning. Our station with God is not due to our greatness, but His grace. Our station with God is not due to our greatness, but according to His grace. I think this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 1, I think we're going to find this in two different movements. God, God's blessing repositions us in verses 39 through 45. And then as Mary gives us her prayer, her Magnificat this morning, we'll see this in verses 46 through 55, that God's mercy reveals a larger story. And so we have this two movements, right? God's blessing repositions us, and that repositioning is part of this larger story of what God is doing. I want to kind of give a, a, a caveat to our, our new series here this morning. We're discussing this as Advent prayers, and you're going to see this morning that they're not necessarily prayers, so it's a bit of false advertising, if you would. What Mary has to say is not necessarily a prayer. It's a discussion of God's faithfulness with her contemporary Elizabeth, but we might also see that if she were to pray this, it would be absolutely fine. It would be a great prayer. There's other things that we'll cover in Luke chapters 1 and 2 that are prayers, and we'll discuss them as such. But as we've emphasized in in this year, this uh, emphasis of prayer, I thought we would kind of do a tour of these first few chapters and say, what is it that the Lord asks of us in this kind of thanksgiving prayer? Because all of these characters, whether it's Mary this morning or Zechariah next uh, shepherds or the angels in, in chapter 2 or or Simeon in chapter 2. All of them are giving thanks to God, some of them directly to God, some of them giving thanks to God to one another. What kind of posture should we have? It's, we consider God's goodness and grace to us. And here's our situation this morning. Our station with God is not due to our greatness, but His grace. We're going to dig, dig into verses 39 through 45. God's blessing repositions us. Dive in with me here in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. <laughs> and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. See, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And it's important for us to kind of know all of what's happening here. And in Luke chapter 1, we're kind of just hopping right into the middle of this narrative, this story. And if we were kind of back up into Luke chapter 1, first we would find this character named Zechariah. And Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, were barren. They couldn't have children. In fact, it kind of gets pretty harsh there in Luke chapter 1. In the early stages, we're told two facts in verse 7. 
Elizabeth was barren and that they both were advanced in years. Zechariah then is uh, doing his priestly duties in the temple at Jerusalem, and as he goes into the temple, he is greeted by an angel who tells him that even in his old age, he and his wife will have a child. But Zechariah, in verse 20, does not believe this angel, so the angel strikes him mute. It's kind of a, a comedy of errors that happens after this point. Zechariah goes home, and in the next week in our passage, we'll see that uh, even though he can't speak, he can hear. People are trying to sign to him as if he couldn't actually hear, right? So funny thing happening. Anyway, I just stole that thunder for next week, but you get my point, right? But the second thing that happens in this Luke chapter 1 is that this young virgin, Mary, is visited by the same angel. So Gabriel goes and visits Zechariah in the temple, and then he travels to backwoods Nazareth, and he strikes up conversation with this young girl, Mary. And just to highlight, Gabriel had just spoken to a priest in Jerusalem, and now he heads out to the backwoods to speak to a young girl. It's like dropping off a package at the White House and then going out to West Virginia to visit a goat farmer. This juxtaposition of positions that's happening here. What happens is that Mary is told that she has found favor, literally grace from God. And that even though she's still a virgin, she will conceive a child in her womb, that she is to name this child Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation, and he will reign over his people forever, and his reign will never end. And upon hearing this news, Mary goes to see Elizabeth. She goes almost immediately, as we see in verses 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, into a town in Judah. And so she drops what she's doing and almost immediately goes and visits her cousin to talk about what has been told her. Now, if we were to kind of back up into the prophecy, Mary's not just told about her pregnancy. She's also told about Elizabeth's pregnancy. So she's going to kind of share this mutual good news that has happened with her cousin. So Luke seems to imply in verse 41, or verse 40, that she just kind of walks right in. Look at verse 40. She says, she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. She walks in like Kramer and Seinfeld, right? She just kind of bursts in with all of this kind of bubbling over of joy of this prophecy. She's dropped everything she's doing. She's coming immediately to this place in Judah, and she is greeting her cousin, and this is where things kind of take a crazy turn for us. Look at what, what's stated in verses 41 through 45. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord Jesus, or the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment that was spoken to her from the Lord. What's happening here? What is going on in this passage? Well, first, Elizabeth receives information supernaturally. That's what we see in verse 41, that this baby in her womb, that's uh, kind of prenatal John the Baptist, he's not eating the locusts yet, but he's about to, Right. And so here he is, he's in the womb, and he leaps for joy. He kind of kicks around inside of uh, Elizabeth's stomach, as it were. 
And it says that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is kind of a a running theme of what happens here in Luke chapter 1. It's not just Elizabeth that would be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's her husband, Zechariah, who would be filled with the Holy Spirit, as we study next week later on in Luke chapter 1. It's the Holy Spirit who will come upon Mary and and put the, the baby Jesus into her womb. This Holy Spirit is active, and he's highlighting the birth and meaning of this person, Jesus. But she starts to kind of dole out these blessings in verses 41 through 45. Notice verse 41, Mary is blessed amongst women, most blessed amongst women. Verse 42, blessed is the child in her womb. Verse 45, that Mary is blessed to believe. But notice particularly what Elizabeth does in verses 43 through 44. Elizabeth, who's advanced in years, who has the honorable position of being the wife of a priest, submits herself socially to Mary, this teenage virgin girl. Verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? This is not a statement of bitterness or resentment. Rather, Elizabeth is recognizing that her situation has changed, that even though she's superior in age and stature and, and status, now she is submitted to Mary, the teenage Nazarene, the honored one of God. See, Elizabeth is recognizing that in God's view, Mary is more esteemed than her. She's the most blessed amongst women. That somehow the tables have kind of turned, that they've shifted for Mary and Elizabeth, so that now Elizabeth declares honor for Mary. I remember uh, years ago when I was taking my seventh grade science class, I believe it was, there was this discussion uh, about uh, spontaneous generation. And if you recognize that term, you know what it is. Spontaneous generation was this idea that living organisms could develop from non-living matter. So what was happening is that if you uh, were a first century farmer or whatever, and you set out a slab of beef uh, in the morning for dinner that afternoon or uh, whatever, uh, if flies or larvae started to uh, uh, form on that piece of meat. That's what spontaneous generation was. Surely the meat itself was transforming into these larvae, which would then become flies. So this is this idea of spontaneous generation. It was a a scientist by the name of Francesco Reddy who disproved uh, this theory by placing meat inside of a jar. Go figure. And if you place meat inside of a jar, guess what? No flies or larvae formed on the piece of the meat, right? I remember sitting there in my seventh grade class thinking, how dumb are we that for centuries we believe this to be true? See, sometimes things are not as they appear to be. Sometimes things are not what they seem. See, God's saving work gives us eyes to see reality. We're tempted to see the world through our own lens. We always want to see the world through the lens of us, through ourselves. The world either bends for me or fights against me. And so we have these things called optimists and pessimists and and those oriented to, to their blessing or curse. And we just kind of see the world through this lens. 
when all we can see is the material world, all we have to hope for is worldly things and worldly ways. But the gospel gives us a new lens through which to see the world. See, God's grace in Christ gives us a new lens through which to see the world. Mary and Elizabeth are invited into this new reality where God turns nobodies into somebodies. All of those who feel removed from the inner circle of life are invited into this kingdom of God and given the utmost value and significance. But it's not just this. It's not just that God repositions us in Christ. It's that God's doing this globally. And and the second part of our passage invites us to this idea that God's uh, mercies here to Mary and to Elizabeth are revealing a much larger story of what he wants to do, not just with Mary and Elizabeth or Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah. It's what he wants to do with the world, not just even just Israel, but what he wants to do globally with his people. So what happens is that Mary breaks out into this song. It's like I get annoyed with musicals where people randomly break out into songs because that doesn't happen in life. You know, I don't have a bad thing. And all of a sudden, you know, I start singing a song about it. This is exactly what Mary does. She writes a poem. In response to her cousin Elizabeth, this is how she responds in verses 46 through 55. Now, we're going to break this into two different halves. We're going to see Mary's reflection on God's grace to her in verses 46 through 50. And then we're going to see kind of a a general statement of God's goodness in 51 through 53, and then his particular goodness to Israel in verses 54 through 55. So let's kind of dive in this morning. Mary praises God for his mercy to her in verses 46 through 50. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. What exactly is Mary saying here? It's important for us to recognize that this is kind of a, a poem, that there's uh, there's couplets and imagery and contrast, and we want to interpret what's happening here as if it were poetry. It's not just this kind of fly-by-the-pants kind of statement. Mary is actually writing some type of poem, or Luke is, is, is kind of, either way, you understand what I'm saying. It's a poem. Starts off in verses 46 through 47. Mary is glorifying God. It's not just lip service, it's not just this uh, this statement, this vague kind of statement. It's not just that Mary has all the feels, and so she, you know, kind of fumbles around with her words. She speaks from her soul, from the depths of who she is, the deepest part of her being. She is declaring this praise to God. That's what she says in verses forty-six. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. There's something visceral, something honest, something genuine that's happening about Mary's response and praise to God. Now notice what she highlights. She recounts God's exaltation. For he has 
looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Verse 48, verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me. Just as Elizabeth recognized a marked difference in Mary's status, now Mary is also recognizing it. Not that her status has increased with people. In fact, we, we know that's not going to be the case. She's actually going to get more shame because of this prophecy in Luke chapter 1. Rather, Mary has found grace from God in her status with God. And so Mary recounts God's mercy. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary sees herself as a recipient of mercy. As she has feared the Lord, she has received mercy. This is what's interesting. Mary's blessing and Israel's blessing are tied together. And I think that's what Mary's getting at here. Mary doesn't just see God's faithfulness to her. Mary's not just recounting, man, am I lucky. Mary is vocalizing hope, not just for herself or for Elizabeth, but for all of Israel and ultimately all of the world. Look at what what is stated here in verses 51 through 55. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What is she saying here? See, Mary highlights God's mercy to Israel. Mary gives a string of kind of these third person aorist tense verbs. And you're saying, what does that look like? Well, it looks like this phrase that we see repeated where it says, he has, right? Verse 51, he has shown. Verse 52, he has brought down. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry. 54, he has helped his servant. She gives this string of these verbs that highlight the actions of God. So she begins with these general statements about who God is and how he blesses in verses 51 and through 53. God scatters the proud in verse 51. Particularly, he uses the thoughts of their hearts to bring them down. See, that is, uh, God uses the way people think to dilute their power. And if you want an instance of what this looks like, you think about Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, who God hardens his heart so that he rebels against God, and that ultimately becomes his undoing and the loss of the army of Egypt. He doesn't just scatter the proud, he exalts the humble. In verse 52, God has brought down the mighty, again, like Pharaoh, or we think of Esther, Esther and and Mordecai, the ones opposed by this wicked man, Haman, the gallows that had been built for Haman actually, or had been built for Mordecai, actually become used on Haman, the enemy of Israel. And so God exalts the humble and he brings down the proud. God fills the hungry in verse 33 or 53. Again, we see this reversal. The hungry are filled, but the rich become empty. This is what we're seeing all the time in Mary's words. Whatever happens to one group, the high position, they're brought to a low position. And those people in a low position are brought to a high position. 
But this is the part of her poem that takes an unexpected turn. This isn't just about God's faithfulness to her or just generally about God's faithfulness to others. This is about God's faithfulness to Israel. Look at where she concludes her poem in verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel. Verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, we're talking about the nation of Israel. We're talking about Abraham's offspring. Now, I want to show you this chart that's from a commentator by uh, named R.T. France, and he highlights this. He says, whatever's said about Mary is ultimately stated about Israel. So there's this similitude between what's happening to Mary and what's happening to Israel. See, Mary is described as his servant. Israel is described as God's servant. Verse 48 and 50, Mary is described as the object of his favor and mercy. Israel is described as the object of God's favor and mercy. In verse 48, Mary is described as humble or lowly, and Israel is described as humble and lowly. Verse 50, there's a perpetuity or perpetuity. Oh my goodness, I'm too stupid to even say that word the ongoing nature of his mercy. Verse 50 and verse 55. I can't get beyond that word perpetuity. We see then that God is faithful to Mary as he's faithful to Israel. What he's doing in Mary, he's doing in Israel too. And notice that this help is forever. It's not just this temporary aid that God kind of swoops in and cleans up the situation and then sets them off on their own trajectory. God is here forever for eternal purpose with his people. Most importantly, let's zero in on the help that God provides. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God gives a reminder. He ties a string around the finger of his people so that he can remind them of his grace and his kindness to them. He had spoken this mercy to their fathers and to their forefathers for generations dating back to Adam, running up through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, continuing through Moses, through David, through the kings of Israel, and up through the prophets. God is telling them consistently about the salvation that is coming to them. He had told them that he would crush Satan's head in Genesis chapter 3. He had told them that a descendant from Abraham would be the recipient of the blessing of the nations. And in uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one from David's loins, one from David's seed would sit upon the throne for all eternity. He told them that one day there would be no end to the increase of this man's governance in Isaiah chapter 9, that he would write the law upon Israel's hearts and upon their minds so that all people would know him. See, this child in Mary's womb was the expression of God's mercy to his people. Jesus is the subject of Mary's thankfulness because Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's mercy to Israel and to the world. Mary's thankful because she knows the baby in her stomach brings hope to more than just her and Elizabeth in this room. At the end of this child was to bring hope to the entirety of humanity.
I love this text. This text has layers, kind of like Shrek, you know, onions have layers, parfaits have layers. This text has layers, you know. And some of the things that are buried in this text are just fascinating to me. There are two different allusions to barren women in Luke chapter 1 that I think we want to kind of uncover. First happens in verse 37. If we want to go back, we didn't cover this. In verse 37, the angel is speaking to Mary, and he says this. He says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Well, where else have we heard that statement? That statement was made to Sarai in Genesis chapter 18. When Sarai hears the news that she'll be pregnant within a year, and she laughs. And Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, looks back and says, it's nothing too hard for God. Second illusion we have happens in verse 46. It's Mary's statement, my soul magnifies the Lord. It mirrors the statement from Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah was this woman, the second wife of her husband, who was barren. And she prays to God that she would have a child, and God meets her in that, and she starts to praise God for meeting her and her need. See, both Sarah, Sarai and Hannah were barren. Both felt the sting and shame of being childless. Both had interactions with God about this subject. God has always been one who turns the world upside down. He intervenes in the lives of the barren, and he causes life in their wombs. He changes fortunes of those who are down and out. So this morning, what we see in Luke chapter 1 and in the statement of Mary is that God receives glory as a reverser of fortunes, as one who reverses the fortunes of those who are down and out. See, Mary's mercy this morning was, was about position. I was struggling. I found myself struggling this week going, Mary says she receives mercy in like verse 50, but mercy for what? There's no sin that we know she performed. There's nothing that she, we know she sinned. We know she did wrong. Just hear me clearly. I'm not saying Mary is perfect or flawless. But what mercy is she talking about? In my own tradition, there's this long strand of sin hunting that I like to do. And so I like to think when we receive mercy, there's some correlating sin that we've performed. But I think what this text is highlighting is something different. See, Mary really has three strikes against her positionally, socially, as we speak. Mary's a virgin from Nazareth. She's a virgin girl from Nazareth, excuse me. First, she's a virgin, meaning she, she had not yet taken a husband, and she has not yet born children, and which, as Elizabeth could tell you, uh, was everything in their culture. If you wanted to have social standing as a female, you needed to have children. Particularly, you needed to have sons. Mary is a virgin without children, a young girl, as it were. In fact, that's the second thing, is that she's a girl. And I don't think uh, I need to remind you that being female in the first century was, was not a place of advantage. As we read a great deal of first century century uh, Jewish literature, women were not to be trusted, which makes it much more interesting that so much of uh, of Jesus' story is entrusted to women. We think about uh, Mary Magdalene, who's the first to come to witness Jesus' resurrection. It's not just that she's a virgin and that she's a girl. 
She's from Nazareth. As we've already said, Nazareth was this was a, this poison pill in and of itself. Nothing good came from Nazareth, as Nathaniel so aptly pointed out in John chapter 1. This was kind of like the, the backwoods part of the country. Nothing good came from there. No good tribes were from there. It was just kind of this barren wasteland, or as Jerusalem would see it, just kind of this nobody'sville. See, her problem, according to Luke 1, is not a life of rebellion against God, be that as it may, or sinfulness, but but of obscurity in the world. Don't get me wrong, Mary was a sinner like all of us, but the way in which Luke 1 speaks, Mary was a nobody. She had nothing kind of uh, notable about her. And the movement of our passage shows us that this teenage girl from Nazareth became what Elizabeth said was the most blessed amongst women. It shows us that that God's economy, that God's way of doing things runs along, along different rails than our world does, doesn't it? See, Mary's mercy was about position. We kind of reflect on that and we realize that sin has alienated us from one another. Uh, since the Garden of Eden, people have found themselves moving further and further apart. It's made most notable in Genesis chapter 11, where it's like all of these people come together to build a tower, and God in his grace and mercy disperses them at the Tower of Babel. See, people made in God's image who would who had have walked with God in the cool of the garden become something lesser as they're disintegrated from one another, as they're separated from one another. And what happens is, is that we kind of run in these streams of influence and kind of capability. Right now, supposedly the most powerful man in the world sits in Washington, D.C. in an office that's shaped like an oval. But there's also a young person in Zambia that is far away from the power circles that exist. And we try to undo this kind of differentiation and disintegration that happens through highlighting certain people groups. We talk about uh, kind of the plights of people like the Uyghurs in, in China or the Palestinians in Gaza or whatever else the people that might, might be out there that are kind of marginalized. But in the end, there is no way to draw attention to the various people groups around the world who experience hardship and difficulty. See, the further we spread around the globe, the more we become separated from one another, the more we're prone to be like Mary, a nobody. See, in a sin-cursed world, people become more and more decentralized. And as they become more and more decentralized, they become more and more marginalized. Perhaps you and I have felt this way as well. We too, we wake up and we feel that what we do doesn't matter. And the global scale of things, the widget that you make tomorrow might not feel like it has much bearing upon eternity. And the global scale of things, the the dollars you put into the economy might not feel like they make a difference. So you and I were made to walk with God in the cool of the garden, but we've become content to walk our dogs in the streets of Troy. We recognize this morning Something's changed with us. See, it's in this context that the gospel brings good news, just like it brought good news to Mary and Elizabeth, not because Mary was pregnant or Elizabeth was pregnant. The good news was that God was bringing restoration to humanity. I love this book of Luke. It's interesting. And 
kind of a bit of trivia for gospel community. This is the first book we ever really preached openly. Uh, we went through this in our first year together um, some seven years ago. So I love this book. But what's notable about this is, is first, this book is written to a guy named Theophilus. And, and Timothy, or uh, Luke is writing this, and he opens up in Luke chapter 1, and he says, To you, most excellent Theophilus. And it, a lot of commentators see that this is probably a person of political authority, as someone who's powerful and, and kind of is, it has sway over different people. Isn't it interesting that when Luke writes the story of what God does in the world, he starts with a teenage pregnancy? He starts with the barren woman. He writes to this most powerful, most excellent Theophilus, and he reminds them that God does his work in the back alleys, in the small things, the fine print of his world. See, this theme of God's upside-down kingdom becomes pretty obvious in the book of Luke. By the time we get past Luke 1 and 2, which show us the birth narrative of Jesus, that Jesus is born in a backwoods place called Bethlehem to these marginalized people named Mary and Joseph, a carpenter, and his pregnant teenage wife. Chapters 4 through 6 start to highlight that God works amongst other people that are marginalized too. God starts, Jesus starts healing the demon-possessed and lepers. He calls a tax collector to follow him. And it all kind of culminates to this sermon on the plain that happens in Luke chapter 6. I just want to highlight this. The verses are going to be on the screen for us this morning. This is what Jesus says after all these healings and miracles that he's doing amongst these people in Nazareth. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward in heaven is great. For so their fathers did to the prophets. See what Jesus does there? He takes the world and he flips it on its head. This is the movement of the gospel. The good news of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection takes the orientation of our world where we think people are somebodies and, and I'm just a nobody, and it just kind of flips it on its head so that I become this central part of what God is doing. If you don't believe me, take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anyone, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What does he do? He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God is reconciling us to himself so that he can send us out with this life-giving gospel that he's doing in the world. He saves you and I from our uh, kind of marginalization, our, our, our sin-forced kind of uh, separation that we have in the world, and he brings us into this inner circle of what he's doing in his kingdom establishment in the world. He pulls in the Marys and the Elizabeths, the Jason Bradshaws and whoever else it might be, and he creates this ragtag team of people that he calls the church, and then he engages the world through it. 
That's the glory of our God in that Jesus Christ has, has centralized his people so that he's doing what he accomplishes, what he wishes to accomplish through us. See, God reconciled us to make us reconcilers. That God is, in his infinite wisdom and grace, has pulled me and you into his global purpose. And by our faith in Jesus, we're made new. We're new creatures. The old things are gone. The new things have come so that you and I can be sent out in this renewal and grace and accomplish what God has purposed for this world. See, the church is not just this who's who of the world, is it? It's not for the most learned. It's not for the most eloquent. It's not for the most uh, people who can say perpetuity without stumbling over it five times. Gospel is for those who have need. This morning, Christian, I want you to see this, that recipients of grace are globally significant. That God has placed his hope in you and in me. Paul says this in, in 2 Corinthians 4, just before this passage we just read. He says that, that he has shown the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us by placing this treasure in what he calls jars of clay. Jars of clay is not just a 90s band. Okay, I've been trafficking in 90s stuff recently. I apologize, but God placed the hope of the world inside a teenage girl. And before we roll our eyes, hasn't he done the same with us? Hasn't the God of heaven placed his spirit in us to empower us to righteous, kingdom-minded living? This morning, Christian, what you do matters. What you do matters. I may be preaching to myself this morning. Tuesday night, I woke up about three o'clock in the morning. Many of you know I've struggled with just light depression at times. Three o'clock in the morning, I'm turning over in my mind whether what I do matters, whether it has any significance at all, whether it changes anything. Does God move the needle? And then he drops this text into my lap. Realized this morning that my effectiveness has nothing to do with it. My job is to hear God's word, see God's glory, and to proclaim it. There at three o'clock in the morning, I came up with this really bad analogy. I am the nozzle on the hose, as it were, that God waters the earth with his word, and my job is to direct it in the right spots, to just not get plugged up and block up the water. That's all I have to do. See, as you are raised to new life, filled with God's Spirit, you are God's tool. And when we are made new creatures, we become ambassadors. You and I are embassies of God's kingdom, and we operate by different rules and different values. So here's the question to you this morning. Which is more important? Is the world's honor and esteem more important or God's grace and mercy? Which one holds the affections of your heart? Which one holds the imagination of your mind? I dare say 
that a barometer of this, as in the life of Mary, is this nature of thanksgiving. Notice that when God sets his missional purpose in the heart and in the womb of Mary and Elizabeth, that it overflows with thanksgiving. When God shows Mary what he's doing in the world, Mary starts to praise God. The question before us is our heart is is our heart so oriented to what God is doing in the world that we overflow with a thanksgiving of our heart and mind? We might think that Mary's newfound mission, her uh, kind of pregnancy that's forced given to her, might make her anxious. But instead, Mary responds with overwhelming thanksgiving, gratitude. See, as we become those who pray, approach God's throne with grace, throne of grace, we want to be people of thanksgiving. We recognize that God has pulled me from the periphery of where I was and brought me into the plan of what he's doing in the world. That is a particular grace that I didn't deserve. I wonder if we might be those who are so charged by the mission of God, what he's doing, what he's accomplishing here on earth, that we might be thankful to God for what he's accomplishing. I want to pray to that end. I want to pray that God gives us a sense of what he's looking to do amongst his people in the world and that he would give us a sense of gratitude, that our souls also would magnify the Lord like Mary's does. And from the, the bottom of who we are, we might thank God for his grace and his kindness to us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you have pulled us from uh, whatever corner of the world we existed in, whatever state of of marginalization, whether it's socially or or otherwise, morally or, or whatever. Lord, you have in Christ renewed us. You have set us to your task, and we thank you for this. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful. Pray, Lord, that you would use us to send out your word faithfully to those who don't know you. I pray, Lord, that you would honor and glorify your name as we faithfully serve you for your greater glory. Lord, as we are about to take this meal together, we thank you for this church. We thank you for how you've blessed us. I pray that there would be sweet fellowship sweet reminders of goodness and grace from you. These things, in Jesus' name, amen.